Welcome back to the Welsh History Podcast, episode number 103, House Aberfraw's Bitter End. In June of 1282, David hoped to defend the northeast and the four cantrips from the northern forces of Edward, led by Reginald de Grey and King Edward. David positioned his men at an old Iron Age fort he renamed Kerguil, or Hope Castle, just 12 miles from the border near Chester. Edward was able to slowly assemble his forces in Chester, beginning at first before moving into Wales. By early June, 7,000 men under the command of de Grey took the castle and began to assemble the fortifications into a proper castle instead of the bare bones that David had built. David himself had retreated at this point, but this had opened a narrow coastal supply stage for troops moving through the four cantrips and was a bad sign of things to come. With Griffith Gwenwinwin once again loyal to the king, Edward was able to move men and material into northern Powys by way of the southern Powys that Gwenwinwin controlled. Obviously, this problem created jeopardies to the flank that David had been building. By autumn, only Griffith Feichan was left of the leaders in northern Powys, and much of the land was given over to English lords. Griffith himself would survive the war one-handed and be later given back his lands after the war. However, if things were going well in the eastern marches, the same could not be said in the south. For the king, Doithbarth resisted English advances much better than David's forces were able to do. But even as they were struggling in early April, the English were still able to grab one of the key points, taking Aberystwyth back. They would hold the castle, and work on rebuilding it would begin before the war was even over, and eventually the castle would finish construction in 1294, just in time for yet another Welsh revolt. In the rest of the south, de Clare, who was leading the English forces, ran into the same troubles they had in 1257, as the Welsh were able to ambush his troops near Llandilio, this defeat forced Edward to send more troops south to try and create a stronger offense and to be able to hold on in fighting those battles. Declare had lost a large number of troops, including five knights, one of whom was Edward's cousin. As this defeat had angered Edward, the king sent in reinforcements from the southwest counties of England and, of course, Bull declare from command on July 6, 1282. He was then replaced by Edward's uncle, William de Valence. He was Earl of Pembroke and a trusted Edward loyalist who fought with Henry during the various baron wars and with Edward on crusade. So he was a man with a lot of military training and experience and obviously would be a very different leader than declare. Add to that that the Welsh had killed one of his sons, and, well, he would obviously be very motivated. On June 19, 1282, Eleanor gave birth to a baby girl, the first child to Llewellyn, but unfortunately it was also his last. Eleanor died in childbirth, which meant that for the elderly Llewellyn, who was at 60 on this point, his chances of passing on his inheritance were very unlikely. It would be David and his sons who would take over as successors of Gwyneth and the Principality. This combination of hammer blows must have hit Llewellyn hard. If he was not motivated before to get involved and concerned about consolidating his own ancestry and descendancy in Gwyneth, 
he no longer had that holding him back. While there were some sources that said Llewellyn was involved in the fighting prior to this, these are mostly English in nature and unlikely to be accurate. Realistically, he would have probably spent more time with his wife watching over and making sure that his own territory was kept safe. Likely didn't really feel a lot of attachment to his brother, who had betrayed him earlier, so may have not felt the need to get involved up until now. But now, with no heir to inherit his title, and with most of the countryside at war, it may have been that Llewellyn thought that his best lot would be with his brother, to save their line. Thus, the first real signs of Llewellyn on the battlefield were in the south in late summer, around August. The marcher lords and the rest of the English forces in the south began to march into Carmarthen, and would join forces with the rest of the western invaders to raid and pillage their way around Doithbarth, destroying churches and taking various valuables. Likely, they also raped and pillaged the farmers and local villages, but of course we don't have that information because most of this was written by clergymen, and obviously their concern would be of a more uh, spiritual standpoint or really more about their own stuff. By early September, these forces were in Aberystwyth again and were fighting in South Wales was mostly done. Many of the Welsh lords in the south had fled north, at least the ones loyal to Llewellyn and David. In July, Edward once again began to advance into the four cantrifts. David had retreated to Denby at this point, and the king took time to wait for the arrival of the medieval version of tanks, heavy cavalry, who had arrived in Rudland in early August. These forces would be the fist to smash David. At least that was the interpretation of the situation. As in 1277, Edward used his naval superiority to send 2,000 infantry and 200 cavalry to Anglesey to seize the harvest from the breadbasket, once again to deprive food from the Welsh under the command of Luke de Tenay, former seneschal of Gascony. They easily took the island, which shows how ill-prepared Llewellyn was for this fight, as obviously this had happened before, so one would have to think that from a tactician who'd had lots of experience fighting, he would know enough to try and defend his one source of growable land. But instead, it was taken away relatively easily, which I think shows that he just didn't have the manpower to fight along four different fronts. To show that Edward was going to take all of Wales this time, he was tasked engineers to create a series of flat-bottom boats that would be used build a bridge from the island back to the mainland, effectively stringing these jury-rigged boats into a, a walkable bridge. There were forces on Anglesey that would then be able to strike at the heart of Gwyneth and take the ancestral seat away from Llewellyn in Snowdonia. At least that was the idea. With easier fights now won, the English turned to the heart of the rebellion, the Four Cantrifts. There they waged all-out war, taking churches and accusing them of harboring rebels, thus killing churchmen and burning them down, along with, in some cases, killing women, children, and even babies, according to the accounts written by the Welsh lords and church's officials after the fighting had happened. In fact, after the war, 100 damage claims were raised against the English invaders by the Welsh clergy, who had received 
17,030 pounds in compensation, showing there was at least some obvious level of guilt which was accepted by the Crown during the war. The forces of Edward met up with his eastern commander, de Grey, in late August. The fighting appeared to be fierce on the Welsh side. They were generally prepared to make the English pay for each mile. The death toll was adding up, and as an example of this, the English cemetery at Rutland was full by October 1282. The Welsh, meanwhile, had been stockpiling supplies and generally preparing for this fight in the northeast. In one particular fortification when it was taken, it was found that there was piles of corn stacked neatly in it to show that they were ready for a long-duration fight, uh, corn likely being wheat at this point. After the war, towns in the area of heaviest resistance were the ones where the English settlers were moved into to try and pacify the area once and for all. In part because Edward wanted to, obviously, as we said before in other episodes, had wanted to sort of make a more civilized situation in Wales, thus creating systems of wealth that would drive people out of the countryside and into the towns and anglicize them, for lack of a better word. But the other reason is because a lot of settlers were probably moved in, in part because these areas had been abandoned or the people there had been killed during the fighting. The English advance was slowed as much because of the territory they were fighting in as the actual people they were fighting. The boggy and steep hills and plentiful choke points created ambush areas where the Welsh made them pay and distract them and tie them up. So the English used mass forces, up to a thousand men moving and clearing areas, in multi-pronged attacks in some cases, and generally just crawled ahead, pushing the Welsh back and forcing them on increasingly desperate situations. There was just not the men and material to carry the fighting against the enemy that was this determined, and every time the king took a major point, they would then use it as a base for supplies and a point to launch their next assault from. Edward, unlike his father, was doggedly determined and vicious in mindset. He would not allow the Welsh time to breathe or space to flee. By October, the cantrips were under control, as well as most of Powys. Snowdonia, or what was left of Gwyneth, was under watch, and Anglesey was taken. The south had been swallowed up, and time was on his side. Basically, this war of attrition was working to his benefit, and unlike previous versions of these kind of battles where Gwyneth or other kingdoms were able to use that attrition against the English, on this occasion it worked in their favor, probably because of the amount of wars that the Welsh had fought in such a short time period, within 50 years, Effectively, they'd been doing fighting pretty much every 10 years, and I'm pretty sure in those situations, even with the losses being small, it builds up over time. David and Llewellyn were now back in their stronghold in Snowdonia, likely awaiting the inevitable English assault in the over-the-winter months. It was at this stage that the Archbishop of Canterbury arrived on the scene. The Archbishop was quintessentially medieval English in mindset. He called out the Welsh for attacking during Holy Week and claiming that their only hope now was an unconditional surrender to Edward. Edward, on the other hand, would unlikely to have been merciful. But, nonetheless, the clergy took a dim view on the whole affair and wanted it to stop. Llewellyn himself took the rebuke in stride and came back with his own set of rebukes at what was seen as the obvious issue, the mistreatment of the Welsh for basically being Welsh. 
Also, he let the bishop know that they thought the English as bloodthirsty baby killers, effectively, who despoiled churches and were unworthy of his respect and were unworthy of the respect of the Welsh. Archbishop Peckham, surprisingly, suggested that Edward should investigate these claims as they might dent his claim for a just war in Christian eyes. The king, for his part, seemingly rolled his eyes in response and more or less said he was putting down a rebellion so the Welsh arguments were invalid as they were not a really a nation-state. Thus, they did not need to be accommodated in this way. A rather unique perspective from someone who saw war as a crusade, or at least that was what his propaganda said, which might explain how much Edward believed it. Peckham, on the other hand, decided he needed to speak with the Welsh leaders to gauge what their side of the story entailed, which would mean he would need to speak with them in person, thus delaying Edward more as he went into Snowdonia against the wishes of the king, since the king refused to allow any Welsh uh, leadership into his presence. Peckham was also brought with him a peace deal. If Flewellyn surrendered Gwyneth entirely and give up his claim to it, he would be given a thousand pounds and land in England. David got a worse deal. He was granted his life only if he went on crusade for the rest of it. The deal was an abysmal one that might have been his last hope for peace, but obviously a step too far for the brothers even before events took another turn. If you're like me and eating healthy is a bit of a problem, let me bend your ear a little bit to eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Kato, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggies. Also, discover more than 60 add-ons every week, like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and beverages to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and fuel up for your springtime goals. Get chef-prepared meals on the table in two minutes with Factors ready-to-eat meals so you can get back to doing what you love this spring. Also, if you're looking for gourmet meals, try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. We're celebrating Earth Day all month long. Look out for the Earth Month Eats badge on the menu for our lowest carbon footprint meals. Head to factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 and use the code welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first month plus 20% off your next month. That's code welshhistorypod50 at factormeals.com slash welshhistorypod50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. 
the boat bridge, which was completed in early November, and with both sides more or less under a flag of truce, and with the clergy more to the point in the Welsh side of things, English forces of Anglesey decided that was the right time to attack, and moving across the strait on their jury-rigged bridge. No one is sure whether Edward ordered the attack or if it was just the initiative of the local commander, but de Tenay and his men crossed on November 6 near the court of Llewellyn. The idea of capturing the symbols of Welsh resistance mattered more than a church-ordered truce, and so they launched their assault. As English forces crossed the strait and made landfall, the Welsh were likely tipped off, and, if the chronicles can be trusted, ambushed them and the, drove the English into the sea, where many more apparently had to round. It was a costly loss for the English, ending any likely peace deal with the loss of 16 knights, including de Tenay. On November 11th, Llewellyn finally answered Edward and the peace deal. Llewellyn observed in a rather snarky letter back to the king, If the prince is not even permitted the barren, uncultivated land due to him by hereditary right from ancient times in Wales, he would obviously not be permitted cultivated fertile and abundant land in England. Effectively, the prince knew his lot would be a miserable one in exile, and he claimed that the people of Snowdonia would never accept an English ruler. The contention was that unlike the English, they were not fighting for money or territory, but for freedom. It was a very William Wallace Hollywood epic style of conversation. Again, quoting him, the prince and his supporters did not wage war out of hatred or a desire for riches by invading foreign lands, but rather by defending their own patrimony, rights, and liberties. With these letters, the die was cast. Welsh leaders were excommunicated, and Peckham called Huelthaw's laws the laws of the devil, and that the Welsh were so pathetic as to be unknown outside of the island itself. Edward, for his part, had enough of the Welsh, and decided against normal practicality to take the fight to the Welsh in Snowdonia in winter. The cost of the war also drove some of the urgency. Edward would spend £150,000 fighting this war, almost ten times the cost of the War of 1277. So, in January of 1283, he called the parliaments to approve a general taxation to fight the war. At the same time, Edward stoked a smear campaign, calling for an end of the malice of the Welsh, as he called them. As part of this propaganda, the English troops started to wear armbands, which had the Cross of St. George, not yet the patron saint of England, and to help motivate them to fight this crusade. The fact that St. George was well known for slaying dragons could not have been missed at this point by either side, keeping in mind that at this stage, a lot of people had popularized and loved Geoffrey Monmouth's book about the histories of the kings of Britain, and, of course, this discussion about dragons would be an important one and a potent one for the Welsh. But, obviously, in retrospect, one would have to point out that for the English... This idea of St. George who slayed the dragon would also be a potent one when fighting the Welsh. Knowing he needed more support, Llewellyn went to Mid-Wales in hoping of drumming up support from, among others, Edmund Mortimer, the son of Roger, who had recently passed away. 
He was also claiming more and more of Welsh support as he traveled. Effectively, he was trying to convince people to join his cause as he moved south. Much the concern of Lestrange, the local commander. Llewellyn, on December 3rd, reached Llangatton, just three miles from Billeth, where he found allies while the English forces themselves were massing in Bulleth and had a larger force than the Welsh. At some stage on December 11th, Llewellyn was separated from his forces, where they were swept up into a battle with the larger English force. Now, strangely, they have it that the Welsh started this fight against a larger enemy, and there may be reasons for this that we'll get into in a minute. Keeping in mind that there's so many different accounts of this particular situation and what happened, that it's very difficult because they cross each other, they contradict one another, and there's no real obvious example that you can say for sure is what's going on. The closest we can come up with is there are accusations that somebody betrayed somebody and that there were people involved who, from the Welsh side who had helped the English forces get across a river, that there was accusations that members of the community helped the English. There was also accusations that Mortimer had tricked Llewellyn to come into the area on an idea that he was going to parley with him uh, and then instead ambushed him. Obviously, this would make sense if Llewellyn had separated himself with as few as 18 men why would he do that unless he thought he was going to something that wasn't there? So likely there was an ambush placed by the English. Likely it has to do with Mortimer. We just don't know. We don't know fully what happened. All we know for sure is that Lestrange's men attacked the prince as he arrived at his destination, killing him and decapitating him. And with the prince falling dead, the leaderless forces like I said, attacked a superior English force for some strange reason and were slaughtered pretty much wholly. Now, could it have been out of anger after seeing their prince fall? Was it a situation where they were ambushed? Again, unfortunately, the sources are not clear as to what happened. Uh, unfortunately for Llewellyn's body, this was not the end of his mistreatment. The head of Llewellyn was then sent to Edward, who then sent it to London to be a propaganda tool, effectively. And it was used to bow his forces up. It was then carried on a tip of a lance through London and then crowned with ivy as a mock of the Welsh idea about them eventually being crowned in London with their own king taking over London. Um, it, it With historic uh, hindsight, it's kind of a little ironic. Um, however, the loss of their leader would have crushed Welsh morale as it helped the English. David took up the title of Prince of Wales, but the bitter irony was he was had a poisoned chalice. Without his brother help to stem the tide and without the finances and without the men and material, he was already on the losing side even before they got to this point. If Edward did not feel... A sense of animosity at the outset towards Llewellyn, there could be no doubt of his opinion of his former ally David. There was to be no peace, only when David was defeated. There would be no treaty, no quarter given. And 
his was the worse for this. As David prepared for the end, Edward massed huge forces that included over 70,000 crossbow bolts in the supplies and mercenaries from across France. This force of mercenaries suffered 33% casualties, showing that even in their despair, the fighting people of Gwyneth left an impression on the English and their allies. By March 1283, most of the resistance in Wales had fallen. David had retreated back into Castle Ybarry in Marinith, and 3,000 English soldiers attempted to besiege the castle, only to find when they finally got in that David actually had escaped to Snowdonia once again, hiding in the wild areas, which were more difficult to try and find. During the whole of the spring, the English searched for the prince and mostly failed to find him, much to the frustration, I'm sure, of King Edward. In late June, David's luck ran out. He was captured in Llanberis, betrayed, unfortunately, by his remaining forces, who were likely tired of running and hiding, and probably hoped to escape punishment from the English. It seemed Edward, delighted in this victory, was made even sweeter because he was, in quotes, captured by his men of his own race. David was drawn and quartered in Shrewsbury on October 20th, 1283, after being dragged around the square by a, behind a horse, hanged and disemboweled, and his entrails burnt, a gruesome death by any measure. His head then joined his brothers on the pike in London, and both of his sons were then imprisoned and treated to what effectively was a long, horrible death, either by mistreatment or malice. Effectively, I would argue, it's likely mistreatment and malice because the king made sure that Owain did not get out of a small cage that he was kept in. There was no sense of trying to make their life easier. These were his enemies, and he was going to make sure they paid the price. Of course, the other thing combining into this was during the same point he was fighting the Scottish, who were not submitting for similar reasons, and likely he was quite vindictive at this stage. The girls, both the daughter of David and the daughter of Llewellyn, were then sent to nunneries, uh, where they would then spend the rest of their lives to ensure there was no heirs to Gwyneth's throne. Edward had won the war against the last, in quotes, independent kingdom of Wales, and it passed into history. And with that, we come to the end of what would be, to this point, Welsh independence. There will be more things that we'll talk about next week, next episode, in regards to this, but this is really 1283 is the end of the line for the principality, the end of the line for the kingdoms, the end of the line for native Welsh leaders being separate of the English. And we're going to come on to what Edward did to sort of enforce that, both militarily and legally, and how that would then create what we now know as modern Wales and set in place a lot of it. Obviously, Edward himself as king is looked at quite differently depending on what perspective you have. If you believe in the English right to rule, Edward's a great king. If you believe in other things that he did for the English people, he's a great king. But if you look at his treatment of the Welsh and the Scottish and the Irish and his general sense of 
irrationality, I guess, his vindictiveness, his sense to be quick to anger, his unwillingness to make peace when he could, he effectively destroyed so much in creating his kingdom and in the end dies on campaign effectively trying to fight the Scots. So never really saw the end to his fighting and the end of his desire to take all of Britain and obviously wouldn't take Scotland in the end. Um, they would lose it once more and Scotland would remain independent after that. Thanks in part because of their alliance with the French. And it's with that that we end this particular portion. And uh, if you have any questions, comments, and concerns, please don't help hesitate to reach out to me at the Welsh History Podcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at Welsh History Pod, and on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Welsh History Podcast. I do try and answer as much as I can. Uh, your questions, if I can answer them, I will. If I can't, you know, I'll do my best to try and find the answer for you if I can. Um, I will say at this point, uh, as we've come to the end of May, uh, coming up here, I am going to end the Patreon. Um, I thank everybody who's donated to it. I appreciate your support over the past year and a half. Um, some of you have been here from the long haul and I, I really respect and appreciate your donations. Um, I'm, I do appreciate that. And next week we'll talk a bit more about what's going to happen with the podcast in general. But uh, I just wanted to let everybody know kind of where we're at and where we're going. And uh, yeah, so we'll talk about that next week because obviously we're not going to have as many Welsh sources. The storylines are going to get compressed again because, you know, at this stage we had massive chronicles on Llewellyn. We spent ages on him and his ancestors I mean if you look we started this particular commentary of Llewellyn Ap Griffith around episode 90 and we're now in episode 103 at the end so that's that was quite a long time and actually much longer than I originally had predicted it would be so I, I'm very glad to have tried to give him and his reign as much focus as we could so I Thank you for listening and take care and we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. This has been a Distractions Media production. And for everything we do, check out distractionsmedia.com. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. 
will include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the facts from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.